Hello and welcome to the Ideas Sleep Furiously podcast. I'm Matt Archer. What you're about to listen to or watch is my most important podcast so far. Today I'm speaking with Zach Kriegman. Zach is a former director of data science at Thomson Reuters, perhaps the world's most important news organisation. He's a former director because he was fired after sharing research on the company's internal social media platform. That research showed that American police kill more unarmed white people than black people, as a proportion of the population, of course. This wasn't just one statistic thrown carelessly into a group chat. Zach had compiled a 12,000-word report with the rigour you would expect from a director of data science earning $350,000 a year. In that report, he also pointed out that the Black Lives Matter movement were probably responsible for the deaths of thousands. He also noted Thompson's biased coverage when it came to BLM. As you can imagine, several outspoken white knights pounced on Zach's bravery, and soon he was no more. You're going to hear Zach tell the rest of the story in the podcast, and you can find the link to his substack down below if you want to read more, including Zach's 12,000-word report. Zach is obviously taking legal action, and you can support him in that fight too. This case really is a litmus test for America and the world. One billion people worldwide read or see Reuters news every day. And as you're about to hear, they aren't exactly getting the impartiality that Reuters claims to offer. Remember, you can access this podcast on all the major platforms. You should also subscribe to my Substack down below. And if you'd like to support the show and get your name in the credits, then there's a Patreon link there too. Apologies for the slight hiss on the recording today, but without further ado, I give you my most important guest to date, Zach Kriegman. So, Zach, thank you for coming on to the show. The first thing I think we should obviously do is you should tell people your story from the beginning and tell us who you are and why you are speaking to me. Yeah. Um, so, I... <laughs> I'm Zach Kriegman. <laughs> um, yeah, so I was working at Thomson Reuters. Um, I'd been working there for about six years as a data scientist. Um, and I was fired for complaining about how racialized bullying in the workplace was making it impossible for us to report truthfully uh, to the public. Um, so I had, um, I had watched over the time that I'd been there as sort of this new racial ideology had spread throughout the company. Um, and uh, with like sort of uncritical adoption of the core tenets of the Black Lives Matter movement, as an example. Um, and that concerned me because as a data scientist, I'd been following the academic research. Um, and I discovered that the core claim of the movement, that police are biased towards shooting black people, was false. Uh, but not only that, the academic research also showed that that claim and the promulgation of that claim had led to huge reductions in policing. And um, huge increases in violent crime, including murders. So this this falsehood that was being promulgated by Black Lives Matter was had directly led to thousands of Black people being murdered. Um, people who would be alive today if not for those falsehoods. So um, I knew as a you know a white employee, if I said anything critical about the Black Lives Matter movement, I'd be putting my career in jeopardy. But on the other hand, I felt like Thomson Reuters had a kind of public trust to report truthfully, um, and we were failing to do that. 
So I just compiled a summary of the academic findings that I had been reading about, you know, these core facts about Black Lives Matter claim. Mm -hmm. And I posted it to this internal company um, collaboration forum called The Hub. Um, and just as I'd feared, that immediately made me the target of this barrage of intensely angry and hostile personal attacks and ultimately highly racialized attacks. Um, and the company's response to that was just to shut uh, every, every, the whole conversation down, censor anything I'd written, any kind of you know, facts that didn't um, align with the Black, line narrative, Black line Lives Matter narrative within the company. Um, and just to completely shut, stop the conversation. And that was even more concerning to me because not only were we reporting falsehoods that were getting people murdered, but now they're saying we can't even have an internal conversation about it. So it will never be possible for us to rectify these falsehoods and to correct them. Um, so at that point, I felt like I had to try to raise awareness of this within the organization. I had been dealing primarily with HR and I you know, published this internal collaboration forum, but I wasn't sure if the leadership within the company knew what was happening. So I drafted an email sort of describing um, the racialized bullying that and how it had shut down any possibility of having of a conversation about the accuracy of our reporting. I drafted an email, sent it to senior leadership and um, other colleagues, uh, and then they immediately fired me for that. Perhaps it's um, worth saying for people that don't know uh, who Thomson Reuters are and why they're so important before we uh, continue on. Yeah. So Thomson Reuters is one of the oldest news agencies and one of the largest news agencies in the world. Um, they have thousands of employees, uh, reporters, offices all over the world. They have billions of, they reach billions of people um, through their syndicated news stories and video content. Um, they're actually, uh, you know, that's, that's uh, Reuters news. And then they also, they're actually a huge media conglomerate. They also have uh, Westlaw, which is in the United States, uh, probably the most important legal research tool. Uh, every, I was a lawyer at one point, so every law firm, uh, every big law firm has Westlaw and pays tremendously for it. Um, so, you know, Thomson Reuters just has a huge impact, I think, on the global perceptions of what's going on, and, and especially because they're viewed as so objective. They're viewed as one of the most balanced um, and objective uh, news sources. Um, and what I discovered from the inside is that's very far from the truth. But, beca but because they're viewed that way, they can have such a huge impact on people's understanding of what's going on in the world. Now, do you think this was a case of uh, a few very loud vo voices, or do you think, as you alluded to there, that actually the uh, ideological breakdown of the company leaned heavily to the left? Oh, I think, well, I mean, I think it's unquestionable that the ideological breakdown of the company leaned heavily to the left. I mean, I'm sure that there were conservatives there and people reached out to me privately as I was being sort of publicly, I mean, internal to the organization, but within the organization publicly attacked and maligned. Um, so, and there were definitely some people who shared my perspective, but I mean, I think that's just true in general of a lot of these big companies, especially big tech companies, big media companies, 
um, they're going to lean overwhelmingly to the left um, internally. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. Um, so perhaps it's worth saying what your 12,000 word essay uh, sure. touched on and some of the key statistics. You, you, you obviously talk about uh, Roland Fryer's important work. So could you give people a bit of an insight into what exactly you were talking about? Yeah. Yeah. So like my post that I po posted to this internal forum was really just a focus on summarizing the statistics and the academic research about Black Lives Matter core claim that police are biased towards shooting black blacks and also uh, about an ancillary claim uh, or ancillary question about how much that claim, what kind of impact that claim has had on mm -hmm. communities uh, that are struggling with violent crime. So. Um, the, you know, the core claim, black, you know, police are biased towards shooting blacks. When we're looking at a question of bias, we're looking really at a mismatch between the number of times police um, actually use lethal force and the number of times they need to use lethal force in order to protect themselves or others um, from a violent criminal. Um, <clears throat> that's, that's what bias really means. It means that they're uh, using lethal force more in relation to the number of times they need to for one group than another. Um, mm -hmm. And the best measure of how often police need to use lethal force is how often they're actually murdered by criminals, because that is a completely non-subjective, objective measure. If you're actually murdered, we, there's no debate about whether or not you really needed to use the lethal force. So it gets really to the heart of how often police need to use lethal force for different groups. Um, when you look at it that way, what you see is that um, police shoot whites disproportionately to the number of police officers who are murdered by whites. And uh, police do not shoot blacks disproportionately to the number of police officers who are murdered by blacks. So if, if anything, actually, they shoot them, they shoot black people at a slightly lower rate than you would expect, given the number of police officers murdered by blacks. Um, so it's exactly the opposite of the claim that the, the false claim that, you know, police disproportionately shoot blacks. Um, another, you know, my post also looked at the best research coming out of uh, academia. The, the number one study on this is from, like you mentioned, Roland Fryer, one of the top researchers in the field, came from, you know, came out of Harvard University. Um, and the only, and he did the only study that actually controls for circumstances when looking at bias. So it's critically important to control for circumstances. You don't want to treat, you know, a situation where a suspect is literally shooting a, a gun at a police officer is the same as, a, you know, a situation where some kid steals a candy bar and runs away with it, right? So uh, when you're looking for bias for one group or another, you want to make sure you're looking at the same types of, of circumstances for both groups. Now, when you do that, uh, what Roland Fryer discovered uh, was that if anything, police are shooting whites slightly more readily than blacks. Now, this was a huge shock to him because, you know, he, he was black. He grew up in a rough neighborhood. He had his own interactions with police that informed, you know, what his expectations were. And he actually set out to show, uh, to sort of lay the foundations for the Black Lives Matter movement's claims. And he found the exact opposite. And he actually... Uh, formed an entirely new research team to repeat the study because he was so shocked by the results and came up with the same thing. Now, I haven't been able to find a single study that um, 
contradicts his a properly designed study that controls for circumstances that contradicts what he found. Um, and then my post looks at the impact of this of this of Black Lives Matter spreading this falsehood um, and how it's led to re- reduced policing and soaring violent crime. And there's now growing academic consensus that um, that these lies have contributed to the you know the huge spike in murders, uh, mm-hmm. overwhelmingly borne uh, by black communities. Um, you, when you look at the numbers, it's the uh, the vast majority of the additional victims in these spikes are black. Very, very few of them are white. I'm sure we'll get on to some of these uh, incredible statistics that you point out in the piece. Um, but uh, an obvious question will come to uh, most people's mind. Why... How do you explain, instead of why, how do you explain the disparity between the narrative that we are fed by the likes of Thomson Reuters and the data? Why is it that it's taken you know, one or two people like yourself and Roland Fryer um, to point this out? Um, surely this, when, when something like, um, we take the George Floyd case, when something like that happens, you would expect, I mean, this, this is obviously uh, you know, not the first time you know, Floyd was, uh, um, that, that, that's, if you listen to the, the Black Lives Matter narrative, you know, this is uh, one case in a long line of them. Why has it taken so long to challenge this narrative and what explains the disparity? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a, I think that's a, uh, definitely a complicated question. I'd also be curious to hear your thoughts on it. I mean, the first thing that occurs to me is, well, there is a legitimately horrific history of violence towards black people in the United States and also, you know, slavery around the world. Um, and so, uh, and I think it, it's, it's absolutely true that this history of, of slavery and Jim Crow uh, in the United States has contributed to a lot of the problems that black communities face. So there's a, like a kernel of truth, I think, uh, to this idea that, um, you know, our society is, has violently uh, oppressed black people. I think that's part of why it's so hard to disentangle the current reality, which is that our society is, is not um, some kind, in, you know, engaged in some kind of conspiracy against black people. If anything, yeah. we're trying, you know, our institutions and so forth are doing the best to reverse those historical, historical problems. Now, I think that there's been all, there's also a lot of like horrifically misguided policy, like most obviously um, defunding the police that contributes to the problems that black communities face, especially poor black communities struggling with violent crime. So uh, it's not just it's not just the injustices. It's also well-meaning policy uh, that is just horrifically misguided. But at any rate, there is a core truth there. So I think that's part of it. I think the other part is that, um, you know, I think there's, you know, potentially a lot of different parts, but another part is that people are searching for meaning in their lives. And, you know, there's, I think there's been some, I'm not a religious person uh, at all, but I think there has been some level of decline in religion in the United States. And that's left sort of a vacuum of meaning for a lot of people and joining a social movement uh, where they get to feel superior 
to other people where they get to, you know, they get a sense of camaraderie where they have, you know, a, a sense of higher purpose starts to fill that void that's left in people's lives when there's, you know, when religion sort of fades away or, or has at least declined to some degree. Uh, mm-hmm. So, I mean, those are some of my ideas, but, you know, I don't think it's not entirely clear to me. I think there's, I think there is a tendency within humans in general to, um, to have these sort of ideological waves, you know, to, you know, these intense new ideologies. That's, that's not an unusual uh, thing in, in human history. Um, you, oftentimes it's taken the form of a religion, and I, I, I see this as sort of a kind of religious movement, this sort of wokeism. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm curious if, if you have a, a, you know, a theory about that as well. Well, I mean, one of the things, if we're talking about still manning the other side, one of the things that occurs to me is that uh, you, the the data doesn't really account for um, the individual intentions, right? So you look at a case like Floyd, and it's this visceral, brutal sight, and you would have to be quite a strong decoupler. You basically have to be autistic, right, to look at that and think, hang on a second, I'm going to you know, consult the data, and I'm going to you know, look at this as a rational thinker. Mm. So, I mean, mm-hmm. how many of those people exist, right? So, first of all, you're, you're starting from um, uh, a place of intense emotion, anyway, that already feeds into a narrative. And then, again, just a steel man the other, uh, the other side, I, I guess you could have a situation where, um, you know, the data comes out as Friar uh, shows it does, um, and the individual cases, right, the individual intentions where black people are, unarmed black men are being shot, right, that could still be due to racism, right? And I'm sure that that's what um, the uh, proponents on the other side would suggest. Now, I think once you start to um, investigate that, it kind of, uh, you, you have to then make a lot of other logical assumptions which don't really hold in the big picture but it but but it can hold if you aren't willing to you know that cognitive dissonance that larry elder spoke about in the interview with yourself um that that can hold as long as you're not willing yeah. to zoom out um and of course the, the other thing i'd throw in is just like the heuristics that we're you know, we're using all the time in in these judgments right so if you look at if okay why aren't there as many black oncologists as you know white and asian oncologists well uh, you know charles murray has written about um about you know things like iq gaps and uh, you know the, the 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 gap in uh, criminal offending in, in his latest book uh, facing reality and it's just so much easier especially if you don't have the the training like you do to look at something as, I guess, uh, stark as a difference in outcome, and attribute, and then when you've got the visceral you know, identity there, so I can, I can then um, that 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 is drawn along the lines of skin color and therefore race. Then it's just much yeah. easier for me cognitive, cognitively to say, well, it's likely that racism has a role. And the further down you go on the woke side, then you're just going to you know, ardently cling, dogmatically cling to, well, it's obviously racism, and to even suggest that it might be something else, something like, you know, to, 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 uh, to even uh, hint at the possibility, you know, to trip on that landmine of something as, um, uh, what would you say, controversial as like IQ differences. I mean, you're obviously racist. That you you are, and as you saw in your you know, internal correspondence, you're you cannot be reasoned with. You you you're the one engaging yeah. in confirmation bias. So I, exactly. those, those would be my two 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 points to throw in. I don't know what you make of that. 
Yeah, I mean, I think those those make sense. And another thing that I see a lot is this like kind of cyclical feedback cycle. Yes. So you have all these uh, white BLM supporters talking about how intensely racist our society is. And you have black people thinking, oh, well, hearing that and saying, okay, well, they know how racist white society is because they're part of white society. So it must be really be really racist. And then they go through their lives and we, I, we all go through our lives experiencing constant slights and mistreatments. Uh, you know, people cut us in line. They don't pay, you know, you know they don't pay attention mm-hmm. to us. You know, we have to ask something three times, you know, we, these kinds of things. Um, and if you are told constantly that the entire society is stacked against you to the point where police are actually hunting you down and murdering you, yeah, yeah. then you're going to see every single slight that, that you encounter in that way as an example of racism. How could you mm-hmm. not? Um, and then you're going to recount that as, exa- as an example of racism. And then that, and then that will feed back into the white BLM supporters. Be like, oh, I hear all these examples of racism from you know from black people I talk to. I think that's part of it. I mean, I'm not saying that there are no examples of racism, but uh, that that are true. But I think it's hard to imagine that there wouldn't be a huge body of examples that are basically misunderstandings that, of the kind of thing that we all have to deal with constantly. Yeah, yeah. But and that's just well, another example. That's another idea. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, I, I would like to move on to intentions and expectations when you when you publish this piece. Uh, you write, I published that post because I could no longer live with myself in an environment where people freely expressed uniform support for a movement inflicting such devastation on the most disadvantaged black communities without, at the very least, offering an alternative perspective based on research and evidence. So you went into this with the best of intentions, and you made those intentions known. Um, what were your expect- expectations? Well, I mean, yeah, like I sort of described earlier, I knew that I was putting my career in jeopardy by speaking out about this. I think there was a general sense, unspoken but understood almost universally, that anyone with white skin within the company could not speak in any way critical of any of this sort of new idea, this new wokest ideology about racial and gender issues, and especially about Black Lives Matter. And, and Thomson Reuters has a big office in Minneapolis, so I think that's um, pro- probably part of why they were, you know, part part of what's going on and why they were so deeply affected. But um, so I, I that's what I was I was expecting that, but I was hoping for something better. I was hoping I was expecting blowback. I was hoping for something. Um, constructive to come out of it regardless and I, I just didn't feel like I could ethically work at a company that was spreading these falsehoods without at least trying to draw people's attention to it um, so I was willing to take that risk and it you know didn't turn out as as I hoped <laughs> you know you write I think it's it's time to get on to these uh, incredible um statements and statistics, you write, it would take roughly 140 years for police to shoot as many unarmed black people as have been murdered as a result of BLM falsehoods in just the past few years. So these were the things that you wanted to alert people to. Um, Can you walk us through some of these incredible statistics and uh, why why, uh, they are the way they are? 
Yeah, I mean, so it's it's really interesting. So I, I don't I don't remember the exact numbers, but I include this in my in my original post. A look at this poll of people, and it breaks down their understanding of the number of uh, suspects who are shot by police each year uh, mm-hmm. by their political orientations, so from conservative to liberal, to from very conservative to very liberal. And what you find is that um, very liberal people. Uh, some substantial fraction of them, like 10% or something, believe that there's like more than 10,000 black, unarmed black people shot by police every year. There, the reality is that there's about uh, 18. You know, obviously it varies from year to year because it's sort of somewhat random and depends on how many circumstances police encounter people. Even those 18, and there's about 26 unarmed whites shot each year. So, but... Um, uh, 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 for both groups, most of those people were actually um, s- still presenting a huge risk. Like, you might be unarmed, but if you're fighting with a police officer and grabbing their for their gun, they still don't have very much choice but to respond with lethal force. So mm-hmm. even those 18 are, are not necessarily, um, you know, example. Like, there are some really horrible examples, like Philandro uh, Cast- Castile, I think is his name, who was literally just reaching to show his firearms permit and ID, and the police thought he was reaching for a gun and shot him. So he was doing absolutely nothing wrong, apart from not following the police officer's instructions, but he had no ill intent whatsoever, uh, and he was shot. But there's very, but most of the unarmed shootings are not of that nature. Anyway, so, um, so it is interesting just to see how drastically misinformed people are, especially along the political spectrum. As you move rightwards, uh, people sort of their understanding of the number of people impacted by mm-hmm. police shootings uh, converges rapidly on the reality. But as you move leftward, it com- you know it, it's it goes completely um, into this like f- almost like a fantasy land of police violence. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, so that's so those are the like, the raw numbers. It's just like how many people in a mil- in a com- in a country with three hundred million people with more guns than people, um, with tens of millions of police stops of suspects every year. Um, You have about 18 uh, police uh, shootings of black people and 26 shootings of white people. So it's really not, I mean, if you understand that uh, there is always this risk of, of violence, it's these are not crazy numbers for the size of country that we are and the, you know, the number of guns that we have on the streets and so forth. Uh, now, you compare that to the number of black people who are murdered by criminals in their own neighborhood every year. So there's almost 10,000 black people murdered every single year in this country. And it's way disproportionate to the number of white people who are murdered. Um, and, and there's very little interracial violence. Almost, almost all the white people who are murdered are murdered by white people. Almost all the black people who are murdered are murdered by black people. There's very little crossover. Um, so it's, it's, um, it's, really, it's really a problem within, you know, within black communities struggling with this kind of you know, gang violence and other kinds of violence. Um, and, the, and it's just completely, completely uh, of a different magnitude. So you've got 26, actually 18 black people murdered each year, but 10,000, I'm sorry, 18 black people shot by police each year and 10 uh, unarmed 
black people and 10,000 murdered by criminals. So it's just, um, it's just amazing that people are focusing on uh, the police shootings, <laughs> given that circumstance. Do you have the numbers of how many black officers shoot black criminals? Or black yeah, I don't have I don't have those numbers, but I th I think that I have read, and it would be interesting to go back and look at this in more detail. That there's no, it's not um, it's not like you're more like a police officer. White police officers are like highly more likely to shoot black suspects. Mm -hmm. In fact, I think it may even be the reverse that yeah, uh, black is, yeah. police officers are more likely to shoot white suspects. But I didn't look into that closely. Yeah, I I think I think um, Sam Harris might have uh, mentioned that on his podcast after the Floyd um, um, incident. And I'm not sure if Roland Fryer has done work on that. Um, but if it is correct, which I believe it is, uh, then you obviously have to uh, do even more intellectual gymnastics to get around the, you know, to, yeah. to still maintain the accusation of racism, like they've internalized their racism, right? Um, yeah, I mean, but what's just, I mean, it's amazing, like you see, you see people calling um, Larry Elder the white, the black face of white supremacy. I mean, it's like they're the mental gymnastics that people are capable of are, you know, pale in comparison to what you need to, <laughs> for to that. I mean, it's just yeah, yeah. But um, so it would be really interesting to hear about the internal reaction and. This is because this is this is a great segue. Some of the emails um, responses that you got that your post got, uh, yeah, it's like it's like a cult, right? You know, I I remember uh, one of them uh, read something like, "It is not up to us as white people to speak about these issues, to speak for black people. Is it we we should just step back, renounce all um, authority." Um, and again, the, these are people working for one of the most, perhaps the most important multimedia news organizations in the world. So could you talk a, a little bit about the reaction in, 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 in more detail and also the type of people who did react that way, whether they were you know, more quantitative data scientists like yourself or... The, these were people who clearly saw something that was antagonistic to their worldview, their preferred ideology, and thought, look, I'm not going to even entertain it, which is basically what a lot of the posts said. Yeah. Yeah, like you said, it was, you know, the re reaction to me was, like, highly, not only just intensely hostile, but also highly racialized. So, like, you know, people were saying, like you said, as a white person, I have no place criticizing the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, that they were ashamed and embarrassed that I had done. So these were all white people saying this, mm -hmm. of course, um, that my, uh, that my uh, summary of the academic literature was white-splaining, um, which is a shockingly racist thing to say, both uh, in terms of like what? It's only white people who are interested in like facts, statistics, <laughs> and like real research. <laughs> um, but also a lot of the people that I was summarizing were black researchers. Um, mm -hmm. So, uh, so how, how is it white splaining? Anyways, the, um, 
the uh, you know they called me racist. Uh, they they called me um, a troll, confused, laughable. Uh, they said I wasn't even worth attempting to have a conversation like you described. Uh, they even compared me to a sympathizer for the Ku Klux Klan, which I think really does sort of um, show how emboldened uh, BLM supporters within the organization were by this sort of racial ideology. They felt, you know, that because they, 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 they felt so in the right and so supported by the culture that had taken root in Thomson Reuters that it didn't, apparently didn't, make them think twice to sort of totally and flagrantly violate these norms of professional decorum, uh, where you just don't, you know, viciously attack someone uh, in, a pub in a public forum like that. Mm -hmm. um, so I didn't, so I actually don't know, I didn't know most of the people who were attacking me well. Mm -hmm. And I don't, and I'm not that familiar with the kinds of work that they were doing. My impression was that they were mostly not um, sort of in this, like highly analytical um, part of the organization that I was in. I was, I was basically part of this, uh, part of the Thomson Reuters labs, which was, you know, doing this kind of machine learning, artificial intelligence and statistics for a lot of different groups throughout the company, including the news group, but largely for the um, legal group and tax groups. And before we had a science and IP group that we worked with. But um, so, uh, Mostly, those the people who attacked me were not in that group. There was one person who sort of con you constructively engaged me, who was actually a coworker of mine, and she sort of you know she was like, "Wow, I didn't realize all these things." But what do you think of this other idea? And I, you know, that was you know that was basically, and there was one you know one other person, but there was you know there were basically like two people who tried to have a little bit of an actual conversation, and they were just you know quickly shut down because <laughs> who wants to be you know, discussing these questions and these facts honestly would make them a target of this intense stuff. But uh, but I didn't see I didn't see any clear. Well, it's interesting. I didn't. You know, you you were sort of it's you sort of seem to be curious about this question of whether or not the um, highly uh, educated and trained people would be. Um, even more sort of ideological and because their their training makes them gives them the power to deceive themselves um, with sort of convoluted arguments and i've definitely witnessed that in my own personal life but i did not see that in this context mm -hmm. um so i mean and who knows maybe it's just like sort of random who the who mm -hmm. the people were who but who felt most strongly but did that answer so, most of your question? Yeah, no, I, I, I think, I think you did. Um, yeah. What do you think? What do you think the end game is here? Then, we've already said that this is an incredibly uh, important litmus test. Um, but and you've already said that this is this is uh, in terms of the ideological breakdown of the company. This is something that we see in you know, all, all over the place. Silicon Valley media companies. Um, so, do you see a I mean, that perhaps we can break this down into you know, short, medium, long term. I, I'm wondering what you think the long term picture is here, because this seems radically unsustainable, right? And I want, I'm wondering if you see uh, a fragmentation, further fragmentation, um, further polarization, where, um, you know, as for example, deep fakes become 
the norm in the next, say, decade. Uh, we just don't even pretend. We don't even uh, pretend to want to have a uh, an informed discussion with anybody from the other side. And we really are just in uh, two camps with our own social media. Yeah. Uh, it's funny you mentioned deep fakes because, you know, going on to the, you know, doing this podcast with you, I don't actually know you. I haven't necessarily... I haven't heard of your podcast before. So I'm like, well, is this guy real or is he basically just collecting footage of me so he can train a deep fake and then have me say like all these horrible and racist things and then totally discredit everything that I'm saying and make the story sort of go away. Um, I've been rumbled. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, it is interesting. Like, how do you like, it's going to be, when when the deep fake technology becomes so good that it's really impossible to tell the difference, and I think we're pretty close already, but uh, and it's and it becomes so available, I, it's hard to know. Like, it's what what it is is we're going to be going back to a world before video proof, right? Mm-hmm. Which is how most which is how most human society has been, um, but video proof is and and, and like you know, pictorial proof and, and sound recordings have been so um, helpful for us to see, to understand the truth. Like as a lawyer, there's all this law about when you, when you can believe a third party's account and when you can't, because mo- throughout so much of history, you know, that's been <laughs> like, we haven't had these tools to, to understand. So it's, it, it's uh, so... Uh, so it's been so important to develop some principles around that, and maybe it just means we're headed back towards that. Hopefully not. Hopefully there's some kind of technological solution. But um, anyway, so where do I think we're headed in the in the long run? Um, I see some hopeful signs, and I see some pessimistic signs. Uh, in the U.S., I think it's sort of it's hopeful that. Uh, there does seem to be this kind of backlash towards wokeism that is um, brewing and um, maybe sort of changing the direction of the debate a little bit. But it seems like, you know, Republicans, largely on the back of this backlash, are set to pick up seats in the House and the Senate and possibly in a couple of years, the presidency. Mm-hmm. Which I think would send a very power if that happens, send a very powerful message about sorry about the uh, you know the public's um, support for this, but uh, for this sort of ideology, and mm-hmm. um, and maybe it would cause some people to rethink it, especially the politicians, uh, if they if they discover that this is not a profitable. Um, narrative to be pushing and it's just amazing to see the politicians just pushing these lies and pushing this hatred and division and within our society but if at some point they start to say oh wait this is not as profitable uh politically as it used to be maybe they'll back off i don't know but yeah i mean but on the other hand now we have people who are so deeply um immersed in this sort of alternate reality where we have police hunting down black people to exterminate them, right? It's like, and that's just one example, part of the you know, uh, illustration of the alternate reality, but they are so disconnected from what's actually going on. And it's not a small number of people. It's a huge 
fraction of the population. So how can we, you know, how can we move forward for, with that if that's what they believe? Uh, yeah. And it's not true. I mean, if it was true, that would be a different thing. But when it's not true, uh, yeah, how do you ever reconstruct a society? Uh, I don't know. Yeah. Well, you talk I mean, about the Ferguson it, effect, don't you? I mean, th this is this is uh, highly pernicious stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And whether we can ever come together again. Um, you know, I was just reading this article about uh, by this political polarization expert, and I can't remember her name, but basically she was describing how, you know, and, you know, I guess they've looked at different countries and different time periods um, around, around the world and how, the, you know, once they sort of tip over to this extreme polarization, like we're sort of tipping into the in the United States or have tipped into, um, whether they ever get out. And it's not a particularly hopeful um, it's not a particularly hopeful message that she has. It's, you know, it's like, yeah, you can maybe improve, but the record for improvement after tipping into this extreme polarization is not very promising. Yeah, yeah. Well, people are worried about you, know, uh, Trump 2024. But you know, uh, the I know this is not a particularly original point. But of course, when things are this polarized, what you should actually be looking out for is something much worse than that. You know, an, an actual out and out fascist. Um, and it's already pretty bad when someone is, um, you know, I guess, inciting violence and uh, the the capital riots are uh, obviously a uh, a milestone um, in American history. So. There, there, there's nothing to say that uh, there's someone worse. There's not someone worse than Trump around the corner in 2024 or in the years that follow. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think I think it's easy to imagine us heading in down the path of Venezuela uh, in terms of uh, the intensity of the ideology feeding sort of political transformation, feeding um, economic transformation. That economic transformation feeding even more intense ideological, because as people get poorer and they're struggling more and more, they're more likely to grab onto these extreme ideologies and then sort of just spirals out of control until you're, you know, you have people eating their pets, um, which is horrifying to think that it could happen in the U.S., but it seems from, from, from today's vantage point seems entirely plausible. So to finish, can you give people a uh, summary of where you are now, where your case stands, and what you're hoping for for the future. Yeah, so um, legally, uh, you know, so there's the legal part, and then there's just like, what am, what am I doing um, in the rest of my life? But legally, uh, so I've initiated a complaint with the Massachusetts Commission Against Discrimination, which is sort of somehow related to the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, which is the sort of the, um, the national, uh, the national level of, of anti-discrimination law, but I've mm -hmm. initiated a complaint with the Massachusetts one, the state level, um, and Thomson Reuters re replied to it with a bunch of pretextual, pretextual um, nonsense about why they fired me, which was sort of transparently pretextual. We responded to that, um, and then there's a conference actually in, I think, about a month, uh, or a little less than a month. No, actually a little more than a month. Um, where we're going to sit down. I actually don't know what will happen in that conference. Now, from that point, we can, we, from, actually from this point, we can say, okay, we're going to move, re, leave this administrative process because this is not a, actually a lawsuit. This is an administrative process that you would need to go through to, in order to file a lawsuit. And you can request a right to sue letter. 
and then you can take it to the courts. Uh, and I have, my attorneys and I haven't figured out whether that makes sense. Um, but I think this is like, this is an interesting legal case because it's so clear. Um, the facts are so clear. I mean, they, act, they literally called me up after censoring all my, uh, you know, my criticism of Black Lives Matter and the facts and the summary that I did. They literally called me up and said, if you, if you complain uh, about the racialized bullying and how it's making it impossible to report truthfully on any company communications channel, uh, will you'll be subject to discipline, including termination. <clears throat> um, so they literally called me up and told me uh, not to complain about the, the, the racialized bullying that I'd experienced, which is, um, which is almost uh, the exact description of like retaliation, uh, yeah. uh, which, is, you know, which is one of the things made illegal in these. So it's, I think it's an interesting case because we'll, we'll really get to explore whether everyone is protected uh, by the law or whether or not there are just certain subgroups that are protected uh, by these laws. And then once that's established, and there's other cases, of course, not just mine, that are sort of pushing into this new area of law, but once that's established one way or another, then the public can say, well, um, you know, can, can, can make an informed decision about what kind of law they want. Once it's clear that you know the law is only protecting certain groups and certain of, of, with certain races and certain genders and so forth, uh, then we we can reform the law, or hopefully the law will actually be interpreted broadly by the courts to protect uh, everyone. Uh, so that so those are, I mean that's how I've been thinking about the legal case. I'm I'm about to send out an email on my Substack um, asking for support because it's. Because one of the problems with these cases is that they're so uncertain um, and few people can afford to actually bring them because they can be very expensive. <clears throat> um, and since they're so uncertain, it's unclear that you'll actually get anything at the end. But if no one brings these cases, then the law is never fleshed out and defined. Right. Um, and we, get, we never actually know, what, you know what, the, what the standard is. Um, so that's, that's the, legal, the legal situation. <clears throat> um, and personally, I'm in the process of writing a book, sort of exploring these, you know, my experience at Thomson Reuters and how it informs these questions of like, how has our culture so completely abandoned its commitment to freedom of speech uh, and the marketplace of ideas, which was, you know, unique in, to the United States to some degree. We have probably mm -hmm. historically more freedom of speech guarantees than anywhere else, but mm -hmm. um, obviously we owe a lot of that to England as well. But um, how have, you know, how have we so thoroughly also lost the understanding of what it means to have an honest dialogue and an honest debate um, and versus just trying to cancel people uh, to, to destroy our, our, our opponents? Um, how can Americans uh, and, you know, other people around the world find accurate information and truth in a media environment where, you know, where the, the news sources are so deeply compromised by these, in, in, these intense ideologies. So I'm, I'm sort of, I think that, you know, my personal experience within Thomson Reuters really gives me a, a unique vantage point to help sort of inform the public conversation about those things. So that's what I'm doing sort of where I am personally. Well, Zach, thank you so much for uh, coming onto the show to share your story. And uh, we will have to speak again when your book is published and hopefully when there is a uh, 
a resolution in your favour in this case if it does go to if it does go all the way. Yeah, well, thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciate it.